And here we go. Do, 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 do. Da, 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 da. Welcome, ravenous readers and culture consumers to Bohemian Geek Studies. The place where nerdy knights gather together to share our insatiable thirst for intellectual discussions about our favorite books, shows, and movies. To give our listeners a general roadmap for our Bohemian Geek Studies adventures together, we plan on exploring Matilda and other awesome stories in hopefully what you find to be an absurd level of detail and dorkiness. There will be spoilers and shoutouts, of course, to some of our other favorite quotable books, movies, and shows. As this is our first episode, we wanted to introduce ourselves to you in addition to covering chapter one of Matilda, entitled The Reader of Books. That's right. At the top of each episode, we'll be giving you all a quick refresher on the overall plot of the chapters or chapters being covered before we dive more deeply into the narrative to discuss the characters' themes and plots involved. Uh, The idea, our idea is to help spark the memories of those of you who haven't read the book in a long time, and as well to provide a deeper understanding of the text and its impact for new and returning readers alike. So that means each episode will also deeply explore an important character from the book. That's the fancy word of saying we're going to be engaging in a character study. Yeah. And or we're going to don a little bit of a tinfoily hat as we explore some of our favorite headcanon theories to answer questions like, is Matilda an X-Men level mutant or a Harry Potter level witch? Which Hogwarts house would Matilda actually be in? And is Miss Trunchbull part giantess? Might be, might be. Might be. We plan on closing out the episodes uh, with a thought or two for each of us, dear listener, including you, to think on between now and when the next episode drops. It's our hope that our exploration of Matilda together is only the beginning of our adventures and that you will forgive us in advance if we deviate from our plan as we learn how to be better conduits for ideas about our favorite books, themes, theories for you. Yep. While we're still strategizing about our episode um, uploading schedule, we tentatively hope to have a better idea for you by our next episode. And frankly, the best way to make sure that you don't miss anything is for you to describe to the pod, Bohemian Geek Studies, so that you get notified when the next episode drops. Yes, absolutely. Please do. Now, while we will discuss adult themes and uh, have a PG-13 joke here or there, and maybe quite a few, depending, um, you know, just like the books that we're covering, we would love for this to be a podcast that can not only be enjoyed by, by you, no matter what your age is or your background, but also one that you can listen to in the car or at home uh, with family members. We love for this to be a place where... You can explore these ideas by yourself, but also something that can bring you together and get geeky studying together. Now, before we dive in to kick off the first discussion of our first book, why don't we introduce ourselves and share why we decided to begin our adventures out of all of the great literature that exists, out of all of the choices, why, oh, why did we decide to begin with Ronald Dahl's Matilda? Well, take it away for us. Gladly. Uh, hello, dear listeners. Uh, my name is Will Lee. I am an attorney by day, a uh, rabble rouser, and now, apparently, a podcaster by night. I am 
a husband and a father to an almost four-year-old son named Charlie. And now he can't move things with his mind uh, yet, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, Fingers crossed. I've also been a voracious reader of books since five, which means I I want to devour just great quantities of books, and I have. Uh, And Roald Dahl's uh, books are near and dear to my heart, whether it's Matilda sitting with a book that's uh, that's her size on her lap, or or the BFG happily whiz-popping his way into our hearts. Thinking back on those books that I really love the most, uh, a lot of them were about this hero hero's journey. Um, ones especially where a hero stood up to authority figures, and really Matilda is one of a young reader's first chances, maybe their first chance really, at such a journey. And hello, um, I'm Sarah O'Connor, and when I'm not fighting robots who are bent on destroying humanity for a little Terminator joke for you all, and mispronouncing Roald Dahl's name as Ronald. I'm an artist who left big law lawyering behind me so that I could explore nonfiction and fictional worlds and bring forth incredibly cool creative projects like this podcast. I have a dog, a cat, two rabbits, and an awesome husband named Brendan who lets me bring crazy art projects into our home. Like Will, I absolutely love reading particularly books that involve protagonists who enjoyed learning or were insatiably curious. And frankly, growing up, Matilda was a heroine of mine. I really admired her and still do and envied and envy her intelligence. So when I was younger, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, I followed her example and consumed as many books as possible. In full disclosure, I wanted to be a child prodigy, but, uh, it just never panned out. Fortunately, though, it's thanks to this young, fierce, and magical girl, among our other shared beloved and loathed characters, that we're here today doing this together. Now, speaking of growing up, did did we know each other when we were younger? Nope. Uh, have we been super tight and BFF since, you know, always? Not a chance. Although I think we probably would have gotten along quite swimmingly. Uh, Like all of the best coming-of-age podcast hosts, uh, we met in an online Facebook chat group just this past year. Classic. My lovely wife, Camille, uh, introduced me to a podcast that many of our listeners might know about called Binge Mode. And I love the hosts Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion's takes on Harry Potter and Game of Thrones, uh, and now Star Wars. Uh, And I joined the Facebook group this year, uh, inserting myself into many conversations along with various Photoshop comments and the rest is history. So first of all, that's pretty much adorable and wonderful. And let's put a pin in that to take a moment to revel in how you just referred to memes as, quote, various Photoshop comments. Uh, Second of all, shouts to one of our wonderful script reviewers, Bex, for highlighting this gem of phraseology. Seconded. And how about you, Sarah? What was your side of the, uh, quote, how I met your co-host story? I, um, like you, Will, absolutely adore binge mode as well. And shouts to my friends, Evan and Hallie, for introducing it to me. I remember devouring the pods, um, specifically the Harry Potter episodes, and vowing that, Mm -hmm. like the hosts, Mallory and Jason, I would, um, and I wanted to, share genuinely and creatively in new and daring ways. That's when I decided to join the Binge Mode Facebook group during the dry season waiting for new episodes. 
And uh, Will, I got to admit, uh, it was there that you first caught my eye. <laughs> I noticed you in the binge mode group making really caring and intelligent comments, um, but it took me probably about a month or two before I dared to dream to ask you to help me breathe life into BGS, this podcast. The fact that we easily chatted about our favorite books and shows, such as Harry Potter, Game of Thrones, <laughs> Phantom Tollbooth, Alice in Wonderland, and uh, so many more, as well as our shared of the love of law and philosophical exploration was quite frankly, super exciting to me. And when I saw you post that you were a lawyer in a, uh, dare I say, biasm showing well-reasoned comment, <laughs> I anticipated that you had the nerdiness quota I wanted in a podcast buddy. And I think it was that week that I finally shared my podcast dream with you and here we are today sharing our thoughts with you, dear listener. It just goes to show you can meet great people online. Wild. Now that we've established how hopefully adorably geeky you are, why don't we turn to the topic that brings us here today, Matilda. Now, both of us read Matilda when we were younger and are returning to it um, now that we're adults. Did anything surprise you in particular when you returned to Matilda so many years later? Yeah, it's it's been really interesting. You know, this endeavor that we've uh, embarked on has been really good for reading comprehension. You know, I've, I've read Matilda many times over the years, um, but a lot of those times I've really sped over some of those earlier chapters in Matilda uh, and, you know, kind of dismissed them as, oh, Matilda handles her family and, you know, laughter ensues. And not as, um, you know, reading a little more deeply now, not as, you know, this this is a young girl who's abused. Her her dad is incredibly damaged. And it's frankly a miracle that she doesn't turn somebody inside out um, sometime later in the book. Spoiler alert and seriously, when revisiting Matilda and her adorable, zany, and somewhat troubling antics, I had several moments where I thought to myself, oh my goodness, girl, you are going dark fast and I don't have trouble seeing why. So one of the guiding stars that I think we'll be returning to as we cover this and other great stories is the important and sometimes, frankly, life-saving role that teachers and role models have on page-turning protagonists that we admire. Another is probably how written and visual stories themselves can, frankly, act as surrogate mentors how these books may teach us different lessons at different stages of our lives, which can lead to controversy when people, particularly adult authority figures and younglings, disagree about what can be enjoyed and when. And frankly, as you know, Will, and as some of our listeners likely know, in some extreme cases, books have been burned or banned, I believe including Matilda, mm -hmm. for their empowering nature and mind-expanding content. Yeah, yeah, that is an excellent point. And Matilda, as, as you rightfully pointed out, uh, shows up uh, on a lot of those band lists more often than not. And the concern in reviewing and deconstructing these sacred stories of our youth is, is, is really going too dark too quickly. Although we do have to acknowledge those, those, those dark themes. Roald Dahl 
delivers some very dark themes in his books. And it's kind of like, to me, what reading uh, what Bill Watterson wrote about uh, Calvin and Hobbes kind of in in retrospect. Uh, We look at Spaceman Spiff and Calvin's adventures, uh, but nobody, including Watterson himself, deny that there are really deep issues at play. Uh, He he writes some notes about it in some later books, um, and we'll also get into some some of the similarities in these dark themes and others between Watterson and Dahl in later episodes. When our favorite authors like these write about some of these more troubling themes and messages, what it really does is we can look at them and it really makes us, as the reader, think deeper about the covered issues. And we realize that there's a lot of complexity behind the the slapstick and the jokes. And and I think with those wonderful thought-provoking thoughts in mind, it's time for us to dive into the coveted pages and explore the magically, albeit occasionally troubling, world of Matilda. So um, without further ado, Will, why don't you set the stage for us in our first of hopefully many episodes? Excellent. Now, as the book opens, we don't hear from Matilda first, or the beloved Miss Honey, or the dreaded Miss Trunchbull. Um, I, unlike how a lot of Roald Dahl's books often end with characters revealing that they're the narrator. Themselves. Yep, that's right. That's right. Uh, this book begins with a, the author himself uh, serving as the narrator to give readers a bit of perspective first. And Oh man, what a perspective it is. And look, you know, this this narrator is he's cynical, he's he's an apparent misanthrope and he kicks off uh, you know, our arguably mislabeled children's book this way. And hold on one second there, hmm. Will. Um, for those of you who like me are wondering what a misanthrope is, it's a person who dislikes humankind and avoids human society. This definition is brought to you by something funny and horribly catchy that we'll determine a cool name for later. Um, Hopefully with your help, dear listeners, the more you know. Yes, and and we'll hope you'll you'll chime in with your suggestions. Now, yeah, this misanthropic narrator, he he reflects on how parents can be so disgustingly blind to their children's faults and failures by saying that if if he were a teacher, he would get back at the parents with some some real zingers, such as Fiona has the same glacial beauty as an iceberg, but unlike the iceberg, she has absolutely nothing below the surface. Frost burn. Speaking of which, it seems almost crazy that uh, an author, Ronald Dahl, frankly any author, would begin a children's book by setting forth some pretty tough scorchers against kids and their parents, both of whom are their primary target demographic for purchasing a book for themselves and others. I anticipate that the likely counter-argument to that concern is that kids who want to read Matilda would find it regardless of whether or not it's banned. And the adults who would offer Matilda to children as reading material would hopefully not fit Ronald Dahl's scathing descriptions. What do you think, Will? You know, I'm actually trying to figure out whether Roald Dahl is the raptor in this analogy or if the children are, but I think it works (laughs) either way. Yeah. Um, But... As to the story itself, the the worst parents, according to the story, are, are really the ones who are completely oblivious to their chili- children's brilliance. And that's where the Wormwoods come in. 
Dun, dun, dun. Thank you. The Wormwoods are this nuclear family of four. Uh, Mr. Harry Wormwood, the father, is this scheming second-hand car salesman. Uh, Mrs. Wormwood, whose first name we never learn, actually, throughout this book, is a simpering, largely absentee mother. Uh, Michael Wormwood, the son, is the older and preciously normal-seeming brother. And finally, the precocious and somewhat terrifyingly effective young Matilda. It's through these characters and how they relate to one another and, frankly, beat the tar out of one another mm-hmm. that we see the pains and perils of, of what happens when you don't see children's talents clearly. Now, we'll do a deeper dive into each of the Wormwoods and possible reasons for why Ronald Dahl and other authors may have chosen this namesake, specifically Wormwood, in the next episode or two. Um, For now, let's find a few important descriptors to build our mental framework to understanding this family dynamic. First, their last name is incredibly significant. Mm -hmm. Turning to our handy-dandy dictionary, wormwood is a noun, and that word is defined as, quote, a woody shrub with a bitter aromatic taste. More aptly, perhaps, the word is also defined as, quote, a state or source of bitterness or grief. Not ideal. Especially when you consider that the Wormwood parents were, and I quote, both so gormless and so wrapped up in their silly little lives that they failed to notice anything unusual about their daughter. They looked forward to quote enormously to the time when they could pick their little daughter off and flick her away preferably into the next country, or even further than that. Just as troubling, Ronald Dahl goes on to write that he doubts that the Wormwoods, quote, would have noticed had she, Matilda that is, crawled into the house with a broken leg. I gotta say, and we'll talk about this later for sure, but I'm pretty sure the Wormwoods and the Dursleys would get along swimmingly. Oh yeah. And as a spoiler tease, if you're hoping their parenting techniques improve and that there's going to be some sort of happy ending for everyone, family unit, in the words of the renowned and infamous Ramsey Bolton, you haven't been paying attention. That's right. And upon meeting Matilda, who do we meet? We we meet this young three-year-old who is reading Easy Cooking in the newspaper. She quickly tires of these reading materials. She asks her parents for a proper book. Uh, unfortunately, the, the elder Wormwoods couldn't care less about books, keeping none in their house. Uh, and instead, Harry Wormwood demands that Matilda explain what's wrong with their 12-inch telly or television. And this is the first indication, correct me if I'm wrong, Will, mm-hmm. of many that the Wormwoods would have had an absolute blast in this modern age of binging television shows on a huge widescreen TV. This is also the first clue on when the story may have taken place, which is one of the many nerdy tinfoil topics we're going to dive into, hopefully, in the next episode. Absolutely. That's that's one of my favorite topics. And also, the Wormwoods would definitely have had a blast in the modern, uh, modern age of widescreen TVs and probably just sat wrapped in front of their television the entire time. And because you see, Mr. Wormwood, as we'll come to find out in in the chapters, is really materialistic and he's really prideful. He likes surrounding himself with comfortable things and it seems the best toys. Uh, Each morning he enjoys eating a huge breakfast in his nice home. 
Similarly, Mrs. Wormwood, uh, her mind turns to the family Silver later in the book when she believes there's a home invader. Uh, a, a lovely, uh, and going back to when this might take place, uh, you know, a lovely 12-inch telly would not have been very impressive uh, in the 1980s when Dahl wrote, wrote this book, which suggests to us that perhaps the setting for this book is earlier than the publication date. Uh, so going back to that 12-inch telly, it would have been much more impressive in the 1950s, uh, when according to 1956 data, only one in three families in Britain had a television set. Uh, similarly, the, the idea, the very idea of watching an American television program in Britain is something that would have been fairly new in the 50s and 60s, as watching that transatlantic program might have been new and somewhat controversial. Uh, back then, Brits were used to their state-run television, and the commercialized, glitzy American programming came off as as more than a little crass, which, of course, is very appropriate for these unrefined wormwoods. Uh, along similar lines, Roald Dahl is similar to some of our other favorite British authors who came of age right before or during World War II. Uh, the, the effects of wartime rationing are clearly felt through throughout Matilda as well as Dahl's other, uh, other books. And you also see this in C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, for example. These guys inordinately value butter over margarine and, and they write about it all the time. And, to give you, and this will give you a taste of what we'll cover in a later chapter. That's a cute little uh, pun, little cute food pun you did right there. For now, why don't we return our young and older readers to Matilda, the reader of books, who has once again been left home alone, which happens almost every afternoon while her mother is allegedly playing bingo in a town named, and hopefully I pronounce this right, Aylesbury? I think that's right. Uh, and this is another teaser um, for a fun tinfoil topic we'll be looping back to in a later episode, including our headcanon on where we think she's actually going and what we think she's actually doing. Mm, what a cliffhanger. In the meantime, instead of calling the British equivalent of Child Protective Services on her parents for what seems to be daily abandonment, the now four-year-old Matilda decides to walk herself to the library. How she found her way there in light of her parents' seeming vast intolerance to books is a subject we frankly might never know the answer to. But what we do know is that one thing that unites us is our shared love of reading books, mm -hmm. which not only makes the reader of books a fitting title to the first chapter um, about a book-consuming heroine, but also our first theme. We are here recording, and you are there wherever you are listening, tuned in, because hopefully we are all readers and lovers, or at least consumers in the, in the day of audiobooks, of great stories. Mm -hmm. The cleverness of Ronald's title to this first chapter in the book therefore invites consumers of his story, and particularly young readers, to immediately identify with the book's hero. And this, this kind of reminds me Mm -hmm. of J.K. Rowling's opening in Harry Potter, if, if I'm remembering this, yeah. where she says, 
our story begins. That's right. Absolutely. And that, that's that's exactly right. Going back to Dahl, like all great heroes, um, the hero of our book, Matilda, needs great mentors and role models. And as little Matilda enters the library, she meets her very first mentor, uh, who is the charmingly intelligent and perceptive Mrs. Phelps, the lovely librarian who introduces Matilda and us to the treasure trove of books contained within the library. And why don't we, since I think this is the first and only chance we really get to meet and interact with Mrs. Mm -hmm. Phelps, why don't we treat chapter one, this character study will be about Mrs. Phelps. Great plan. Yeah. And although we only see her interact with her in this only chapter, the impact she makes on Matilda and hopefully the readers last well beyond the pages of this book. Absolutely. And so Miss Phelps, it's interesting because librarians, Dahl actually had a very complicated relationship with them because he knew that sometimes his books get banned. But he he knew that there are good and bad librarians, and Mrs. Phelps is a good one. She's portrayed as a somewhat private and reserved woman, but who gets moved to excitement by the inquisitive and avid readers in her library. For example, when Matilda arrives in the library, Dahl describes Mrs. Phelps as, quote, slightly taken aback at the arrival of such a tiny girl, unaccompanied by a parent, nevertheless told her she was very welcome. And upon learning that Matilda was only let us remind you, four years and three months old, this young little lass was reading like a boss. Like a boss. Like a boss. And if you're the librarian, I can empathize with Mrs. Phelps, who, quote, was more stunned than ever, but adorably she had the sense not to show it. Yes. What a great description. And can I say, as American reader of British literature, what a quintessential British description. Absolutely. She has that that stiff upper lip, huh? Mm -hmm. So Mrs. Phelps, she watches Matilda visit after visit, hour after hour, read through book after book after book. And with Mrs. Phelps' guidance, Matilda ends up reading a great deal of famous literature. By that time, the book then goes on to state, Mrs. Phelps was filled with wonder and excitement, but it was probably a good thing that she did not allow herself to be completely carried away by it all. And to your point before, that's quintessentially British, isn't it? I'm just smitten. And you have to wonder what kind of antics this woman would have gotten into or gets into if she's mentally telling herself to chillax, you kind of get the sense, even though you only have a few short paragraphs to engage with her, that Mrs. Phelps would have definitely let Matilda into the restricted section at Hogwarts. Not that our Lady Matilda wouldn't have just eventually snuck in herself. And, you know, that's that's a good mentor. Yep, right? And like any good mentor, Mrs. Phelps is concerned, rightly so, about the Wormwood's lack of parental engagement and the fact that Matilda just walks to and from the library all alone. But mentoring children with unhappy home lives is definitely not as easy as just providing book recommendations. Spot on. And frankly, I've always found and still find it hard to read how Mrs. Phelps doesn't believe Matilda at first when Matilda tells her the truth of her 
family home situation. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, it is so bittersweet that even when she does learn some of these things about Matilda's dire situation, that Mrs. Phelps doesn't go outside the scope of her duties as a librarian. But then we get into the quagmire of the greater issue of what the proper scope of a teacher, mentor, role model should be or right. someone should do. Absolutely. One of our dear, dear friends who is a teacher wrote to us um, and she said that she thinks it's a huge testament to Mrs. Phelps that she didn't stop Matilda reading. And that's also a fair point because a certain educators and parents believe certain students at particular ages should be stopped um, from reading certain re- reading material mm-hmm. and from reading certain content. Unlike Hogwarts with its restricted section, Mrs. Phelps doesn't put up literary and literal boundaries to her reading experience. Instead, she allows and encourages Matilda to read what she herself wanted. So if I may copy and paste our friend's words verbatim, to me, that's the beauty of Mrs. Phelps. She let Matilda read. Whatever she wanted, she never asked for proof. Never asked Matilda to read out loud to show she could actually read. She just let Matilda go. Ultimately, while I personally wish Mrs. Phelps had suggested readings to Matilda that included a book or two that wasn't fiction or written by a male, I can't be too tough on the old broad when she's dropping truths like a fine writer will always make you feel as though you are right there on the spot watching the narrative happen. And don't worry about the bits you can't understand. Sit back and allow the words to wash around you like music. Yep, that's just beautiful. And with Mrs. Phelps, you kind of get the sense that she is so comfortable as a librarian and in her own skin that she is okay with letting Matilda, you know, read outside the line, so to speak. And that's really kind of something that that I think is so valuable in her. Going back to our reader, entering the library and meeting Mrs. Phelps is where where we bibliophiles, that that fancy one-worded way of saying a person who collects or has a great love of books, like I was when I read Matilda, can really get hooked. This whole description uh, through Matilda, Roald Dahl mm-hmm. does a wonderful job showing how cool reading and seeking books out can be. Matilda just devours these books in the library and the reader's transported with Matilda as she reads that, quote, formidable, end quote, list of books thanks to Mrs. Phelps, including books like Great Expectations, Oliver Twist, The Grapes of Wrath, and The Old Man and the Sea, to name just a few listed. As our gal Hermione Jean Granger would say, Matilda's engaged in a bit of light reading. Nice. Now, once Matilda realizes that she can borrow books... <clears throat> once the librarian finally tells Matilda proper library borrowing policies... Yes, yes there is that. Um, as soon as Matilda <laughs> learns those ropes, uh, she goes once a week to take out new books from the library. She's really off to the races. Back at home, arms filled with books, Matilda converts her bedroom, once once a small ordinary room, to a reading room 
where she can transport herself anywhere in the world. Well, could you please indulge us by reading one of what I consider to be, and I think you consider mm -hmm. to be, the most beautiful descriptions that may have ever been written about yeah, reading. It's it's absolutely great, and, uh, and, I, and I just love it. Now, Dahl writes about Matilda, It was pleasant enough to take a hot drink up to her room and have it beside her as she sat in her silent room, reading in the empty house in the afternoons. The books transported her into new worlds and introduced her to amazing people who lived exciting lives. She went on olden day sailing ships with Joseph Conrad. She went to Africa with Ernest Hemingway and to India with Rudyard Kipling. She traveled all over the world while sitting in her little room in an English village. Ah, oh, perfection. This portion of the book gives me chills every single flipping mm -hmm. time. I just want to snuggle into that description with my own mug of tea or frankly, more candidly, <laughs> heavily caffeinated beverage. Reading this years ago and returning to it now, it just seems so magical to me for someone so young to have this level of curiosity for the unknown and her level of autonomy, her individuality and willingness to go out and seek it on her own is just so admirable. If I may borrow the wise words of one of our friends, Flo, she beautifully said, how miraculous are books that they can transport us so quickly to places we can never physically go. In my classroom, it is my hope that books will be both mirrors for my students' experiences and windows to new people and places. Flow miraculous indeed. Yeah, and we'll see Matilda carry out some miracles later in the book, but I think you're completely right talking about Matilda's level of curiosity and her autonomy um, and being able to transport herself with books that these are really, this very first chapter has the first miracle of the book. And, mm -hmm. it's, and it's really, it's really great. It's a really great one. For those of you with the actual physical book at home, I encourage you to flip to the end of that first chapter to enjoy seeing Matilda in her little reading reading room with in, an incredible image that was first illustrated by the wonderful Quentin Blake, uh, who was Roald Dahl's uh, longtime collaborator and who we'll be discussing more in a later episode. And speaking of longtime collaborators and lifetime influences, now is probably as great a time as any for us to share our own coming-of-age library stories on how we became readers of books like Matilda reading about good, kind adults like Mrs. Phelps, who responded so positively to this young person's intellectual desires, it was quite frankly really encouraging to yeah. me. It was a surrogate teaching yeah. moment. Matilda was and is a real hero for me, and I literally mirrored her behaviors to the best of my ability. In the summer, for example, when I visited my father, each week, if not more, beginning around age 11 or so, I would walk approximately 10-ish minutes alone down to my community's local library to get huge stacks of books at a time. And you better believe I was imagining myself as Matilda and as Belle from Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> and the library is just such a magical reservoir of knowledge and adventure to me, even though it can be so much easier these days with the phone. I am one of those folks, um, call me old fashioned, but 
I like the feeling of a book in my hands. There's really nothing quite like it. The the, the physical book um, and also the library itself. It's just this wonderful place and free, I might add. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, like Matilda and yourself, you know, I spent my childhood exactly this way. You know, my, my memory palace would literally be um, the Greenwich Library Children's Room around 1992. It's, it's just this place that is just so, uh, so set in my mind so perfectly. You know, when I moved to Connecticut, uh, I was astounded to find out that there was no limit to the number of books that I could check out at once from the public library. That was just so incredibly liberating for me. You know, I had spent the last few years in Queens, New York. You know, we had a limit of 20 books that we could check out at one time. And when when the librarian in, in Connecticut told me that there was no such limit, I think he gave my dad a funny look at the time, <laughs> as, if, as if that was like unheard of, you know, it just set us free. Yep. If memory serves, I think I was always maxed out at 15 or 20 books in Port Jefferson, New York. Going back to Matilda's reading room, was there a particular place where you would read your treasures? Hmm, that's a good question. Yeah. At the end of second grade, uh, beginning of third grade is when I moved to Connecticut. Um, and I discovered, you know, the wonders of, the, of that library very quickly. Um, I, I spent days and days, you know, especially that first summer in the children's reading room on the third floor, uh, sitting on, you know, these these red plastic or fake leather cushions and just reading everything I could get my hands on, uh, from your Encyclopedia Brown to Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys to the books by Scott O'Dell and Judy Bloom, and of course, World Doll. My parents and I would get to the library with a duffel bag, and I I'd be able to stay there for a few hours. And after those few hours, I got to check out a duffel bag full of books. Did you ever do Goosebumps? I did, I did. I did. I did the Goosebumps. I did uh, I did the R.L. Stein and, and all those. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. Totally. <laughs> and yeah, you know, I, I started with those and pretty quickly I moved on to some of the more some biographies of presidents and history and, and, and mythology. I loved mythology. Greek and Norse myths and Welsh myths after I read the work of Lloyd Alexander, uh, the Prydain Chronicle which maybe we'll discuss in a later podcast. And, you know, how, how about you, Sarah? Do you do you have a reading room? I didn't and don't. I kind of always, I liked mm-hmm. the idea of a reading room, but I never had one. I'll say, though, that some of my favorite places to read stand mm-hmm. out. Sure. For example, I loved laying in my yard, snuggling up in bed, literally no matter the time of day, it was a good time to be in bed reading devouring pages just frankly as fast as my eyes would let me and sometimes my friends and I nerd alert would have reading races uh-huh. and yeah I cheated occasionally uh, yeah, it happens. yeah you know it happens also just reading anywhere in warm clothes with the windows open on a rainy day is particularly oh, delicious yeah, yeah. to me and sometimes I would read while walking pretending I was Belle from Beauty and the Beast and so since we're on the topic of devouring books in our youth, do you remember those amazing book fairs where you could bring a bit of money into school and have a field day choosing which presents you'd like uh, to yep, get? Yep, absolutely. And, and and presents is right. Those those were those books were gifts. And yeah, those those scholastic reading fairs. We definitely yeah. had those. Um, I remember uh, that really brings it back. That's how I discovered Brian Jock's Redwall series at a, at a school fair where they had all these books just stacked up, and you could walk around. Um, these desks and aisles and look look at the books. Teacher who recommended four 
of the books to me for the Redwall books. And I was actually amazed um, when my mom let me buy all of them. We usually didn't buy books because we had the library. But in that situation, I'm, uh, I'm glad she did because I just read the cover off of those books over time. And re whether it's Redwall or, or Lloyd Alexander I th or, or The Phantom Tollbooth, I think all of those books we just mentioned are totally fair game for the future future podcasts. Absolutely. And what I wouldn't give to have 20 bucks to use at a book again, because that was absolutely the best. And, you know, on that, we're closing out today's episode with a section devoted to thoughts to think on. We learned about how Matilda and two of our favorite hosts became readers of books. Since we're covering three readers of books today, ourselves, you dear readers, Matilda, we have three thoughts to think on to close out today's episode. The first one I think we should think on is we'd love for you to reflect now that you've heard our stories on how you yourself became readers of books or may have helped someone else become a reader of books. If any of you lovely listeners have a fun or personal story about your adventures with Matilda or visiting the library or a book fair, please send us a story. This is very new to us, but it, it takes a community. And so we're starting that building block right here. So share your story with us by tweeting at us using the hashtag Bohemian Geek Studies, spelled exactly as it is, no changes or adaptations to the words. We'd love to possibly highlight a few of those stories from our listeners in upcoming episodes. We'd definitely be glad to. Yeah. Like you said, it, it's a great community potentially, right? And now moving on to our second thought to think on, we'd like you to consider why it is important to read works by authors of a multitude of backgrounds. You know, there's a list of Matilda's books that she read in the library. You know, was that reading list as good as it could have been? Or, you know, could it have used a boost of diversity? Feel free to share your thoughts and book suggestions by tweeting your thoughts along that hashtag, hashtag Bohemian Geek Studies. That will also help us get kind of a sense for what you all love devouring and would love getting a deeper, dorkier dive <laughs> into. And so for our third and final thought to think on, libraries, spoiler alert, are still around and they're still thriving methods of knowledge and fantasy Although some people, frankly, assume that they're antiquated. So no matter your age, there's still an absurdly magical place. And we'd love for you to think on the next time you'll take a trip there. If that's not possible because of life commitments or constraints, hey, we get it. Allow yourself some mental peacefulness and escape to the library of your memories then until the next episode drops and consider this right here, a library reading room of sorts. I like that. I like that. It's it's very meditative. And, you know, it's our hope that this podcast will be a magical way for you to fall in love with these books again, whether you're enjoying this by yourself or with loved ones. We want to thank the episode script reviewers, Colleen, Flo, and Bex. Your insights have made us and this podcast ever better. Wands up. Keep those pages turning. Thank you so very much for joining us for our first, but not last, episode of Bohemian Geek Studies.
Yeah, I've decided that Roald Dahl's name for me is henceforth Ronald, and it's just a Berenstein bear. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, in your reality, it is Ronald. And, you know, it's it's fine. To your credit, apparently everybody pronounces it wrong. Okay. Because I say I've always, my entire life said rolled. And that's what I think most people say is rolled. Apparently in Norwegian, which is where his name comes from, uh, it is pronounced Rual. Ooh. So it's Rual Dahl. Rual Dahl. Ooh. But it kind of rolls through. So if you say it really quick, you can't really tell the difference, I think. Yeah. I think, I think but, I'm either going to go with Ronnie D, which is Ronnie D. Wrong. Or RD for safety. Okay. Safety yeah. The more you know, folks, it's yeah. it's gonna get nerdy here. We That's told right. You. <laughs> exactly. Exactly.